the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And it is a uh, fine day, a fine day, I say, with a lot to cover. Uh, We'll talk in a few moments with Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. Phil Kirpin is a guy who hasn't been on the show in quite a while. uh, Real active uh, policy advocate. And he has filed, his organization has filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court, I think it is, on the vaccine mandates. And I want to ask him, Phil's a very astute uh, observer of the American, not just the political climate, but the American people. And I want to ask him specifically about how he sees this issue. You know, there's a lot of people that say, I'm going to get the vaccine, but they don't want the mandate. Um, And there's a lot of people that say, I'm not getting the vaccine and I don't want the mandate too. And uh, we're seeing all over the world now protests and and shifts on this subject. So we'll talk with Phil Kirpin and a whole lot more. Please remember, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and sign up for the daily uh, email, the daily wink there at uh, ProAmericaReport.com. It goes out every day, 8 a.m. East Coast time, 5 a.m. Pacific time to your email box. It will give you a couple of articles, a couple of key things and what you need to know the daily wink and that's what we do on this segment and so let me first uh begin by saying to you um today's headline what you need to know is joe biden is a racist and i want that to be the headline because i was listening to virginia delegate nick freitas and he's an extraordinary communicator. If you don't follow Nick Friedis on Facebook or on other places, he's a really gifted communicator. He happens to be a really good conservative, too. He's a real fighter, a military man, a veteran, um, and he's just fearless. He just does a great job of being fearless in the fray. And he serves in the Virginia House of Delegates, and he stood up on the floor of the House of Delegates a day or so ago, and he basically said, you know, I got asked about if I'm going to be nice this year. And I, ha, 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 because he's a tough guy. He's a loud, tough guy, very persuasive, fearless. And he said, but you know what? I'm sick of it. Nick Frieda said this. I'm sick of it that the other side calls me racist, calls me sexist, calls me a bigot, anti-Christian bigot. He said, I'm, I, I, let's have a debate on policy. Let's have a debate on all these things. Now, here's one I'm going to tell you. Nick Frieda is actually being nice because he's actually saying that among his colleagues in the Virginia House of Delegates, he's not going to call them racist, sexist, or bigot, bigoted. And he's being nice about it. He's saying, let's debate. And he's and it's viral, by the way. I think I saw it on Forbes. I had some, someone had sent it to me a day or so ago and right after it happened on YouTube. And then it was posted over at Forbes. And I think it was almost a million people had looked at it. So it's great. It's very persuasive. And, and Nick Friedis is, uh, he ran for, might have ran for Congress or U.S. Senate. He's got a, he's got a future in, uh, in elected office. It's going to be great, I think. A real talented guy and a real good guy. Real good guy. Um, but I want to go one step further. And I want to say that um, when someone espouses policies that are sexist, that are racist, that are anti-Christian bigoted, bigotry, then I can't know their heart. 
So I can't know for sure that Joe Biden is a sexist, racist person, but I can know by his conduct that his policies indicate that. And what I would say is Nick Freitas is being generous to the people in his in the Virginia House of Delegates because the policies that they have often are policies, not everyone, by the way, not every policy and not every, but a lot of them that the liberal left votes for and promotes are sexist, are racist, are demeaning of the human person, are anti-Christian in their bigotry. So here's the best example. In the White House now, we have a president of the United States, Joe Biden, who has said, if you're a black man, do not apply for the U.S. Supreme Court vacancy. If you're a handicapped veteran, do not apply Man, a man, I guess I should say. Or uh, if you're a Hispanic woman, do not apply. If you're a white man, do not apply. If you're a white woman, do not apply. The only people that apply must pass a race test and a sex test that Joe Biden gets to say. Now, think about how demeaning this is. He is not saying, which is what Ronald Reagan said. Ronald Reagan said, I would prefer that our institutions have the diversity, show the diversity of our great country. And so I will pursue the best candidate for any job. And if I can, if the candidates are equal, I might appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. He did not say, which is what Joe Biden said, black men need not apply. Hispanic women need not apply. Asian American women need not apply. Asian American men need not apply. There's an Indian American on one of the Court of Appeals, who is widely considered one of the smartest legal minds out there. He's not eligible to apply for the Supreme Court. And my point here is to say Nick Freitas is right. But it's the Tucker Carlson rule that Nick Freitas is right about. What they accuse you of is what they're doing. So when they accuse Nick Freitas and his constituents of somehow being bigoted and sexist and racist, it's because the left is actually doing that. They're actually segmenting the nation, demeaning the people by sex and race, and especially by religious background. They do it when it comes to, let me be clear, you know, unvaccinated. If you do a a survey of the unvaccinated people in this country, you find out that most of them, many of them, I shouldn't say most, many of them come from the minority community, African-American. Many of them come from the uh, low-income community. And yet we're, we, we watch these, uh, these, you know, these bigots proclaim their righteousness against the other people in this, in the, in the country coming from the left on cable TV and everywhere else. So Nick Freitas is right, but he didn't go far enough. And the Tucker Carlson rule is that Tucker Carlson has been saying this for years, that what they're saying about you is what they're doing. For example, Russia, 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 Trump colluded with the Russians. It turns out that it was Hillary Clinton who was colluding with a foreign power. Let me say it clear. The Russia, Russia, Russia hoax was that Trump was colluding in his campaign with foreign entities to influence the campaign. What we know is that all along that time, it was the Hillary Clinton campaign, and no one has, has, uh, has disputed this now, the facts, that was working with foreign nationals to influence the campaign. It's what they accuse you of that they're doing so when they call you racist they call trump racist look at his administration look at the policies the policies that trump did in four years for example on criminal justice and reform of the prisons 
had more of a positive impact on African-Americans. Look at the numbers of jobs created for African-Americans and others. Don't look at the rhetoric of the media because what they accuse Trump of is the opposite. What they're doing, Joe Biden was a leader of the crime bill 25 years ago that everybody agrees was draconian against African-Americans. Nobody disputes that. You watch it over and over again. Joe Biden is the one that is that that, that forced Anita Hill to to stand down, pushed her out. I mean, I think I don't think she was telling all the truth either. I think she was not. I think she was a uh, a foil. But the point here is what they accuse you of as a conservative, as a regular American, is what they're doing. Think about the the Build Back Better proposal. The Build Back Better proposal includes in it a change to welfare to eliminate the work requirement. The work requirement that passed under Clinton with Gingrich and others basically created a a, a safety net that incentivized behavior that was positive for whom? Low-income Americans, predominantly African-American. And you know what happens when you set up a system that just gives people free money? It demeans them. It weakens them. It damages them. Again, you can say the policies are different. I just would say the policies are racist. You can say that the, 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 the hearts and minds of, of Joe Biden and his team are pure. It's just a disagreement. I'm just describing the impact of a president of the United States that's saying, that says out loud, not, not any of the echoes of MLK or JFK that we're going to get the best and the brightest that we're not going to look at the we're going to look at the content of the character not of the color of the skin there were these heroic characters whose framing of how we lived is at the heart of the american experience even it's even in its imperfections even in its imperfections as we strive to improve and right now we have a president who instead has stood up and said, no, you're not good enough unless I tell you, unless I, a almost 80-year-old white man coming out of a certain experience, tell you what opportunity you're allowed to do. In a normal setting, this would be categorized as racist, sexist, demeaning. So Nick Friedis is right. He just, um, he just probably could go further. And he could go further and say, again, I don't know. I don't know the content of the character of the House of Delegates, the liberals in there. I don't know their hearts. I'm not their confessor. I'm not their pastor. I'm not their rabbi. I'm not God. I can't see. But I can tell you the content of their policies and the impact of their leadership is demeaning of people who happen to be minorities, African-American, who happen to be men or women categorized by their sex, very, very racist, very sexist. And my goodness, watch them talk about men and women of faith and the bigotry against believers. It's extraordinary. So good for Nick Friedis. He's a great guy. And Joe Biden, at least his conduct and what he said out loud, sure looks like a good old-fashioned racist. We'll take a break and be right back. That's what you need to know. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's been way too long. I uh, haven't talked to my friend Phil Kirpin in, uh, feels like, months. 
Uh, he, of course, is the president of the American Commitment Foundation, AmericanCommitment.org. And I got him on because I, there's two reasons I want to do this, Phil. Well, three. I want First, I want to ask you a broad question, then we'll go into this. But American Commitment Foundation has filed an amicus brief, and I wanted to use it as a chance to revisit and, and review for my listeners why these amicus briefs are important, why it matters, and also why, you're, why American Commitment is doing that. But first, Phil, uh, Phil Kirpin, you, I was telling in my opening that you have a, um, I, I consider you somebody that has a pretty good uh, feel for not just politics, but the American people in a sense, you know, well, your, your, your business is knowing what's going on. Where are we in this country right now? It, it feels like, and we'll get to your topic of your brief, um, for a while, everybody was either vax or no vax. And, and then there's sort of a, a, a larger group that says, hey, you know what? Uh, you make your own decision, but don't mandate things. I, I, and, but I don't want to get into that specific yet. I want to say broadly, you know, the numbers have fallen off for the Democrats and Biden, and yet the country still seems divided. What do you, what do you sense about the American people right now? I think, Ed, uh, the fault line right now is between people who want to live normal life the way we've lived it forever. And, you know, this is one more virus. If you get it, you deal with it like any other virus. And, you know, it's part of the world. And the people want to continue to have kind of this extraordinary corona maniacal pandemic mentality. And I think that the um, the numbers of the latter group are dwindling, but they're still dominant in certain liberal areas. And so, you know, you still have kind of the remnants of, you know, the full-blown mask mandate, vax mandate, all that kind of thing in a lot of the most liberal cities. Um, but the independents have really shifted. And so politically, the Democrats are now kind of at a dead end in that the swing voters are done with it. They're finished. They either got the vaccine or they got the virus or both, and they're ready to move on. And uh, the Democrats, even among the Democrats, the numbers of people who are ready to, to go back to normal life are rising. But among the Democrats, they're not a majority yet. So that's the problem, I think, that the Democrats have. They're captive to kind of the COVID addicts, the COVID forever kind of lockdown for life uh, wing of their party. But that is now a losing position with the public and the Democrats, I think, know that. And they're, so they're trying to figure out what their escape hatch, what their escape route is. And kind of one of the big questions I have is, you know, will the president hit the ejector button in the State of the Union and say, you know, we, we've survived the pandemic's over, let's go back to normal life. And I think if the president does that, you know, he won't take all the Democrats with him, but he'll take enough of the Democrats with him that it'll be a pretty clear majority of Democrats and uh, the support for these things will will melt away, even the, the worst kind of liberal hellholes. But if the president goes the other way and kind of listens to that faction of his party that wants to keep this stuff up and running, then, you know, I think they can do that and they can keep it all going, uh, you know, but they're going to get really crushed uh, by election time because it's just not where independents are anymore. Uh, we're talking with Phil Kirpin. Phil Kirpin is the president of the American Commitment, AmericanCommitment.org. Lots of, of there or there if you go to that website. Phil, uh, more more broadly, uh, as people come out of this period of time, you and I were talking offline about our families and all. There's lots of ways that we're, you know, I've got a high school senior and, you know, I feel like a lot of her life has been sort of, I don't know, damage is the right word, but it feels hard to say, but impacted by all this. Um, and yet the, the, the economy, I mean, I know it's expanding because we went and contracted so much, but the basics seem off. I mean, you and I know this, we're going to share this. I mean, you go to buy milk and I got to buy a lot because I got all these kids and milk is insane and they go buy gas and it's insane. And so the fundamentals for normal people, 
rich people have a way to insulate themselves. Normal people, it's, it feels really rotten no matter what you do on COVID. It's not a good, it doesn't feel like a good time. Yeah, well, we get we get milk delivered from a farm, so we don't have to contend with the empty shelves. So you might look into that. I think it's the way to go. Uh, but right. you know, look, it's it's a huge issue. The biggest economic problem the country faces right now is rising prices. There's no question about that. The numbers in every poll show that anyone who goes to the grocery store feels it and knows it. And um, you know, the the Biden administration has a huge problem on that front, Ed, because every single policy, every single part of their agenda pushes in the direction of higher prices. Their whole insane anti-American energy agenda makes it not just expensive, more expensive when you go to fill up the gas tank, but it makes it more expensive to buy everything grown, shipped, and manufactured, which is everything. Um, their spending agenda, the trillions and trillions that they've spent and the, you know, the other $5 trillion they want to spend if they could pass Build Back Better, that's all financed through Federal Reserve money creation. There aren't real, uh, there aren't real lenders who are buying up all those treasury bills. They're all being bought by the Federal Reserve. So that's money creation. It's financing the spending. And so that uh, dilutes the value of the dollar, causes inflation, makes everything more expensive. And of course, uh, what they really want to do, but haven't been able to do yet, is broad-based business tax hikes. And if they succeed on that, those will all get passed through in higher prices as well. So short of abandoning their entire agenda, they can't actually solve the biggest economic problem that Americans are feeling right now. And what I really worry about is they're going to go for the fake solution, the political solution of some kind of price controls. And I don't think they're crazy enough to admit it and to say we're imposing price controls. I don't think we're going to get a Nixon style wage and price control order, but they're going to do a bunch of things where they say we're taking action in this industry to lower prices like they did with their big meat announcement. And right. when you look at the details, it's going to be sort of a soft price control. And of course, you know, if government artificially lowers prices when there are all these inflationary pressures, you either get quality that suffers, you get shortages, or you get black markets. They're, they're the only three things that can happen. Right. We're talking with Phil Kirpin again, the AmericanCommitment.org. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about, that's what I mean. Phil's got a, a feel for this. Uh, Phil, now I want to ask you about this amicus brief. First of all, I want to say, our listeners, I would did talk about amicus brief. I talked about amicus brief a while ago. Let me explain to people. Amicus brief is when you see something going on in the courts, a lot of times the Supreme Court, but it can be other level level courts. And someone, and someone says, hey, I have an interest in that, either an interest because, say, it's a fight over X issue and I'm in X industry, or it's over X principle and I have an argument I want to make. Uh, Phil, tell us what your why you guys have an interest in this and, and what you filed and how it matters. I think this is really uh, helpful for people to understand uh, on this topic, but also in general, why this goes about and how you think it matters. Well, you know, it was interesting. Everyone, uh, everyone who listens to your show probably knows we got a split decision at the Supreme Court on these mandates. They allowed the health care yep. mandate. They struck down the mandate for everyone else. Uh, right. The reason we filed in those cases, we actually filed in the OSHA one. We probably should have filed in both, to be honest. Maybe that's why they had the split decision. Uh, you know, we were looking at the docket, and there were a lot of very good legal arguments in there. Uh, and there were some pretty good science arguments also, but there was nothing specific to Omicron anywhere in the docket. And we thought it was really important that the court understand how much facts on the ground had changed and really totally uh, undercut and gated the logic of mandates. Uh, and so we put this brief together and, uh, you know, we don't have, we don't have a credible, you know, we're not an epidemiological organization. So we partnered with uh, two excellent epidemiologists to check our work and edit it and add stuff to it and allow their names to be associated with it. And uh, basically we made three points in this brief. One is that 
Uh, everywhere in the country, Omicron either already was or would soon be dominant, nearly 100% of new cases. And CDC now says it's 98 or 99. Illinois still claims to have 20% Delta. So I, I don't know, someone needs to explain to me who's right or who's wrong. But, you know, substantially all of the new cases are Omicron. Uh, and the that has two implications that completely destroy the logic of mandates. Number one, there's no emergency or extraordinary situation or any out-of-the-ordinary risk with Omicron because Omicron is about 90% less likely to kill you than the previous variants, which puts it very much in the normal range for a respiratory right. virus. It's very comparable to a flu or an RSV or whatever, the stuff we've been living with forever. It's, um, maybe it's a little worse, maybe it's, maybe it's not, but it's in the same order of magnitude. It's in the same sort of general range, range. range of threats that we're accustomed to. And so it doesn't justify extraordinary measures, number one. And in the logic of the OSHA statute, it doesn't present what's called a grave danger. Uh, the second point that we made, which is really crucial, and I think this is especially important uh, for the challenges to local mandates that we're now seeing in all these liberal cities where they're requiring them for restaurants and that kind of thing. Uh, with Omicron, with these vaccines, and these vaccines are poorly matched for Omicron. Remember, Ed, these right. vaccines were designed for a two-year-old virus that doesn't exist anymore. It's like, right. you know, it's like not updating the flu vaccine for the new season, essentially, which I think is an insane Biden administration failure that the FDA did not get updated vaccines ahead of this season was a catastrophe right. and a disgrace. Right. Uh, but basically, with the Omicron and the vaccines that are out now, there is no effect on transmission at all. In fact, some studies show it may have a negative effect on transmission. You may be more likely to get it if you're vaccinated than not vaccinated. That may be a statistical mirage of some kind, but we can say with pretty good confidence that it does not reduce in any meaningful way transmission risk. And that means that these mandates amount to a personal health mandate at best. There may be a reduction in severity for you if you choose the mandate, but that's like ordering you to eat healthy or ordering you to exercise or ordering you to do any number of things that are clearly right. unconstitutional and beyond the scope of what we normally allow government to do. There's no societal or social benefit to mandating a vaccine that doesn't reduce transmission. So those are the, the arguments. We, we laid out a lot of facts and citations. And uh, it was actually What's pretty the time? We were uh, mentioned, our brief was mentioned in the oral argument by the- uh, Oh yeah, that, that, that's what I was going to ask you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you. So you, the arguments happen. What's the timeline? What are you What are you hearing on the timeline of when that decision comes down? Well, that this is the decision. This decision already came out. This was the one on uh, the ocean. This is where the split decision we got a couple of weeks ago. So, oh, sorry, I thought you were yeah. coming in on the uh, on another one. Oh, okay. So, what yeah. happens now? What happens now? What's What's the next? Well, step here's in where terms we are. Of, here's the current yeah. state of play. There are five Biden administration mandates. The um, yep. the OSHA one, which was the one for basically all and all. The companies in the country with 100 or more employees that has been stopped at the Supreme Court. That was the case we filed in, so that was a big victory. That one not only was right. stopped at the Supreme Court, but OSHA withdrew it. So that one is dead right. at the moment. They may try to bring it back on some other legal rationale or whatever. No good idea. No bad idea dies forever in Washington, but that one's right. dead for the moment. <laughs> right. The healthcare worker mandate is in effect currently, and on this right. one, what I would really recommend states do is do what the state of Florida did and pass a law that creates a one-page form where you just have to sign your name to say that you have a religious or ethical objection to it, and they're required to accept it. And if states yeah. do that, they can very elegantly sidestep this and allow healthcare workers to keep their jobs. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think you're going to get relief from the courts or the federal government on that. So I would suggest more states go the 
Florida route on that one. On the federal contractor mandate, that yeah. is nationally stayed by a court in Georgia. And on the federal employee mandate, that is nationally stayed by a court in Texas. So the federal contractors and federal employee mandates are not in effect. The only one that's in effect is the healthcare worker one and the military one. The military one has been upheld in the legal challenges, but there there have been a couple of cases, uh, one by Navy SEALs in particular, that forced the military to recognize religious exemptions that they did not want to recognize. And so there is a possibility uh, there that servicemen who do have a religious or ethical objection may be able to use that. Uh, But the bottom line where we are right now at the moment is the OSHA one is completely dead. The contractor and the federal employees are stayed by lower federal courts. They haven't been heard by the Supreme Court yet. Um, And the military is in effect, but they have been forced by some courts to accept religious exemptions. Okay. Hey, Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org. We're going to run out of time. But Phil, um, now back at the beginning, I asked you about where the people are. Now I'm asking where the politics is. If you had to bet, we're watching like, you know, England announced they're relaxing a lot of their rules. I think uh, Finland did the other day. It feels like other nations, France did a little bit. Are you, what's, your, what's your best bet? Is, are, is, the, is the political class going to give up on this and we're going to come out of it? Or do you think they're going to double down? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say because the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is coronamania forever, okay? Right. But yeah. the center of gravity in the American people is definitely not, and independents have completely shifted away from that. And so I think the smart move for this administration is to declare victory and move on, and we may see that in the State of the Union, but I'm not sure that they can the pull it off. base will allow him to do it. And so that, I yeah. think, is the big question mark. Hmm. All right. Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org. Thank you. A lot going on and I appreciate it very much. We'll have you back on again sooner. It's been too long. Thanks, uh, Phil. All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll take a break and we'll be right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, great to be back. We're going to have uh, one of my favorite authors in the last couple of years, Jeffrey Stevens. His book is called Fool's Errand. And I got his book early on. I, I had him on the show. I just uh, got an email a few, I don't know, a month ago, two months ago, maybe, uh, from one of his uh, people that he won an award. The book won an award. First place winner in the 2021 Pencraft Book Awards. So, see, I knew it was a good book, uh, Jeffrey. I knew it was uh, a winner. And I'm glad you got some acclaim. How are you, sir? Good to have you on. Thanks. I'm great. I'm great. It's good to be back with you. So I was thinking of you for lots of reasons, but one of them was it's a little convoluted, but work with me. The movie The Tender Bar, which is uh, a memoir by J.R. Moringer that was made into a movie that now everybody's seeing because it's Ben Affleck and George Clooney. And it, it has a lot to do with a young boy and a sort of father type figure, which is the uh, the Ben Affleck. I don't know if you've seen it or read the book. It's the great book. The movie is pretty good. Um, but what I was thinking about was your book, Fool's Errand, which is interesting to me, not because it's a thriller. That's kind of interesting. It's because this extraordinary relationship with the father uh, and a son. And I, I, the tender bar made me think, of that. first of all, how, how come somebody hasn't made Fool's Errand into a movie? Uh, okay, so that's a lot of stuff. So let me respond by this. <laughs> first of all, yes, I, I saw the movie. I liked the movie, but spoiler alert, we hated the ending. That's yeah. just something that we could discuss at another time. Okay. Um, and I, I don't even know how to say this because it's such a tragic story, but 
Uh, I had someone pick up an option on my books to turn them into movies, uh, starting with my four spy thrillers. Uh-huh. And uh, unbelievably, he died in a plane crash. Wow. His name his name was Brandon Hogan. He was a uh, very conservative guy. Uh, when we met for, the, I'll tell you a quick funny story. When we met for the dinner where we got together and he said, I want to do this. I want to, I want to make your books into movies. We were joined by Kimberly Guilfoyle and Donald Trump Jr. Wow. For dinner in New York City. It was, it was like magical for me. I just had the greatest time. And then he went out there and he's, you know, pounding the pavement, trying to get this sold. And uh, it's a very sad story, but he was taking flying lessons and he was in the hills of Montana. And the pilot, the, uh, the pilot, the instructor turned to him and said, it was a single engine Cessna, I think. And he said, our, our, our engine is conked out. We're going to hang on. We're going to crash. And he had a 16 year old son in the plane oh, with them. Oh my gosh. And he turned to his son and he, he put his arm around him and said, I love you, son. And the son said, I love you, dad. And the reason we know this is because the pilot and Brandon were killed instantly, but the son survived. Holy cow. Yes. And there was an article in the in the paper about six months ago or so that to honor his father's memory, he was going to take flying lessons of all things. Oh and gosh. so so the article came up. But anyway, it was so sad. He was just a great guy. He had an outfit called Paragon Pictures and it all collapsed upon his death. And so the answer is that's a long winded way and a very tragic way of saying that if someone wants to turn my books, <laughs> give me a call. <laughs> wow. That is available again. Yeah, that is something. So, um, wow. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. By the way, Jeffrey Stevens.com is the website. Jeffrey, J E F F R E Y Stevens, S T E P H E N S.com. You'll see all of his books there. He's, as he mentioned, uh, he's written a number of books and, and, uh, including the Jordan, uh, Sandor, the espionage thrillers. Uh, and of course this book fools Aaron back to the heart of my question the father-son yes. thing in this has it yes. has that part it, it, it touched me i'll tell you larry elder the great uh host of uh salem radio network has a book on his dad and, it, and it's a memoir it's extraordinary you should actually check it out but has the father's like son it. has the father-son thing in this book caught on in the way that you uh might have expected well that's that's pretty much how people have reacted to it i mean it, it really is the book is about the relationship as you know between the father and the son and I wrote the book. It came about, you know, during the pandemic, I decided to do something other than another spy thriller at that point, because I right. felt I wanted to address family because people were really estranged from their families. They couldn't see their grandparents. They couldn't get together sometimes with their parents and so on. And so um, I've had people get in touch with me and say, when I closed the cover on the last page of that book, the first thing I did was call my mother, call my father, yeah. call an old friend. Yep. And so it really is about the connection. And it's also about, and this is an interesting topic that I got into a little bit, not in the book so much, because the book is, as you know, it's an entertainment. It's not, yep. it's not some, not a psychological tome. But the thing is that our parents have such an amazing influence on us, even long after they're gone. And in this book, as you know, the main character's father died young, and yet his influence on the son goes on and on and on and leads to the fool's errand. So right. yes, that was a big part of the book. It is. Um, and, and I and every time I see it and, uh, you know, again, you're uh, we're talking with Jeffrey Stevens and Jeffrey Stevens dot com is his website. When you're, you're, you're uh, a person who's uh, helping promote your book, it's published by Post Hill Press, by the way, uh, and won an award and all. I, I do think that it's a great one for people that love to read that want to read uh, something for um 
a Father's Day or, you know, around Christmas again. And and my point on the tender bar was in some ways that was an exploration of the father. I, you know, I had a, I, the tender bar is written by J.R. Moringer. His cousin, McGraw-Millhaven, is a friend of mine from St. Louis. And oh, wow. McGraw was in the book. He wasn't in the movie as much. But he said, actually, the funny thing about our childhood is we were raised by single parents, single moms. And so the book was about a missing father and our moms. He said, we, you know, our moms got us out of uh, of this uh, poverty and all that and all and uh, the tough life they were in to get them educated. Educational. Well, Jeffrey, I, I'm asked you off the air, but I want to hear you say it on. You're, you're writing again. You're always writing. You're a writer. What are you yeah. writing? What are you writing next? Well, what we've got, we're, we've gone back to the uh, the, the espionage thriller uh, uh, category, and so I've got a book that's an exciting one coming out, uh, hopefully for Father's Day if they can get the printing together with the supply chain mess. But mm-hmm. anyway, it's called The Handler. And it's a new set of characters. I, I've put Jordan mm. Sandra aside for a moment because I wanted to create a strong woman espionage character. And so the two main characters, Carol Gellos and Nick Reagan, they're the ones who, who get involved in, in trying to defeat this terrorist plot. And it's, uh, it's a pretty good read, I think. And I think people will enjoy it. You know, um, Jeffrey, people that uh, say they want to be a writer, they say, I got a writer, I got a great story or whatever. And I, I, I'd say this the right way. Everybody's got a great story. Sure. That's a, that's a difference. But the difference is taking a great story or a great idea and writing it. Now, you you are a lawyer by training, I think. And and, yes. uh, and so did you lawyers write a lot? I mean, I'm a lawyer, too. Lawyers write a lot. But you um you what made you write these spy thrillers? How'd you end up there? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> the answer is that I had written another book, a legal type thriller, which failed. It was not a good book. But when I finally, when I finally decided to start taking the the writing seriously in terms of getting published, I mean, I always took it seriously. But when I met an agent, he tried to get the other book published, and it just didn't work. He said, what else have you got? And I said, well, I've got this spy thriller that's based on a friend of mine who really was in the CIA. I mean, he never told me any classified secrets, but he gave me some background and I knew how he lived. And I wanted to take a run at it sort of like was an homage to him, you know, and was basically written for fun and to see how I would go. And that's the book that sold. Mm. And when it sold, they wanted more of them. And so that's why one Mm. became four. And so the Jordan Sanders series grew out of that just almost accidentally. And uh, it's a fun series and I like it and people react well to it. They sold well. Um, And then I went to do some other things, but now I'm going back into that game. Um, we, you know, we, um, uh, when you talk about the, uh, uh, the, the, um, that game, the world of publishing now, is it different than when you started? Meaning do you, do you know, like uh, Tom Clancy, when his Brooks broke out, he was the cold war and he was, you know, it was like, let's beat the Soviets and all. And it was sort of easy to be on the side of patriotism in this modern moment. Are people wanting to be on a side politically that affects books in other words affects your ability to mark fool's errand didn't feel like that it just felt a father something that was universal but did you have to adjust your your sort of um sense of what's or your agent tells you hey you know don't be too this or that or be this or that because that's where the market is yeah oh, i think absolutely so i think you know with this wokeness going on you you, you know i, I mean so, so i heard this morning that what was it uh, professionalism is now considered a racist term i mean you you just can't make this stuff up so in this book this book is about arab terrorists and right. so in at the beginning of the book i actually there's one page about islamophobia which i really would like everyone to read because you know i don't hate muslims 
because phobia, it really comes from fear and not hate. That's what the root word is, phobia. You know, if you're if you have a phobia, it means you're afraid of something. And if you look historically, I mean, the the Arab terrorists tried to take down the World Trade Center once. Then they did take it down. They went after the USS Cole on and on and on and on and on. So to say somebody, oh, God, that's so racist if you're going to portray them as villains. Well, guess what? They're the ones who are pursuing this path of destruction and, and murdering innocent people, whether right. it's, you know, Bastille Day in, Marse- in uh, Marseille in France or, or any place else in the world. So, yes, you know, you really have to be mindful of that. That's why I love Anthony Zaccardi, who's the owner of Post Hill, because he's got guts. I mean, he stands up to this and says, no, 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 these things have to be discussed. And so this story really is based on actual teachings of the Quran, which which preach the destruction of other people. I mean, there's nothing that I know of. In, in Christianity or in or in Judaism, for that matter, that says, you know, if you don't if you don't believe what I believe, I'm, I have to kill you. I mean, you, you may not go to heaven if I believe that you don't go to heaven if you're a different religion, but it doesn't mean I have to go out and blow you up. And so these are things that need to be looked at. And yes, it is different now because, oh, boy, people want to be so sensitive about these things. And, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. I mean, that's, you know, who was this comedian came out recently and said, I, I can't have a career anymore. Who was that? The the black comedian who's very funny, and he said, this is it for me, because if you can't offend people, there's no humor anymore. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it is interesting that I that you said that about uh, Anthony Zaccardi, because I've seen some of his other books. He, as you say, he's uh, he's willing to be out there. And I, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, well, listen, I, I'm out of time. Uh, Jeffrey Stevens, his book that I like so much, he's got a whole bunch of books and you can check them all out. The one I like so much is called Fool's Errand. It's an award winner now. It's a novel. Uh, it's great for Father's Day. I was mentioning to him. I think it might have been off air. Maybe it was on air. But Larry Elder has a great memoir. You read these two together. There's it's I, I love these kind of fast-paced novels like yours i like that's how i like to read to if i'm if i'm going to read something deep and i have to worry about it i, I don't want to i just got to go read it i can't uh, think so this is this is when i want to be relaxed and kind of have fun so thank you as always jeffrey and again it's jeffreystevens.com jeffreystevens.com i'll put it up on social media we appreciate it thank you sir thank you Ed. happy new year everybody you too thank you thanks very much we'll take a break everybody we'll be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Just got about a less than a minute to finish up. Use so much time on other stuff. Let me just finish, though, by saying, you know, we often talk about what you need to do, uh, the window here in the last segment. One thing is appreciate those around you who have been so good to you. Uh, as I talked earlier in the program, Helen Marie Taylor, who passed away on Tuesday evening, uh, 97 years old, a great life, but she was wonderful. And I'm really grateful in the last couple of years, I had the chance with some others to thank her uh, for everything she did. But I don't know if everybody does that and gets that lucky and gets that blessed to do that. So uh, the ones you love and the ones who've been good to you, remember to find time to... Um, to tell them uh, that you love them and to thank them. And uh, at the worst, make sure that you're simply uh, thanking your, uh, the people you love uh, for all that they do for you um, in your prayers and in your thoughts and in uh, gra- gratitude. So uh, I'm really kind of uh, mixed on this. I feel bad because I loved spending time with her. She was amazing, but also she lived a good life and uh, she's with the Lord. So, all right, everybody, we'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Thank you to Noah Dingley, our great producer, Joanna Spilger, for keeping us on track. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Talk to you then. 
This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.